it's Leanna. Before we get to the episode, we want to take a second to thank you for listening. The fact that you chose this episode out of the millions of podcast episodes that are out there, that's pretty cool. We'd love it if you left us a review, subscribed, shared us with a friend. And if there's something you want to see us talk about on Hometown Stories, just let us know. Send an email to hometownstories at wdbj7.com. Okay, now let's settle in for today's episode. But when that money plant comes in late summer, lazy men turn greedy. They mess with the hardworking. Take what ain't theirs. We got digging stick and burlap sacks. I got a pistol in my pocket. Since the era of Daniel Boone, Sengers have been trying their luck at turning roots into riches. The wild American ginseng created outlaws and bylaws, fact and fiction, and trying to define a people almost as elusive as the plant itself. Generally speaking, across the 19th century, um, it, it was vital for some parts of the community. Fueled by a robust Asian market, the ginseng trade has persevered, though now with conservation top of mind. So I think through the regulations that we have, we have some protection that's given to ginseng to make sure that it's available for future generations. In this episode of Hometown Stories, a look at the histories and mysteries rooted in Appalachia's ginseng trade. Some folks call me a witch, and that's a good thing when it comes to digging ginseng. They come up on me in my long dress, dragging the ground, catching twigs and leaves and stones. Got me a crow nesting in my top knot. I talk a little crazy and folks back away and turn tail. Those who get horses... That begins a character introduction in Leah Weiss's debut novel, If the Creek Don't Rise. Our character, Bertie Rokas, is a medicine woman in the fictional western North Carolina town of Baines Creek, setting out to dig the very real ginseng root. When the ginseng was ready for harvest, Tatler showed up at my place at first light that morning with his digging stick. He got leather strips tied below his knee in case of rattlers. I got on three wool dresses, so if them snakes strike, they got a mouthful of wool. Wild American ginseng is an elusive, protected, and storied medicinal herb. You can find it in many places in the U.S., but it's perhaps most strongly associated with the mountainous regions of Appalachia, where it clings to steep, shady mountainsides. For Lynchburg, Virginia-based author Leah Weiss, the ginseng and all the fables and foibles it comes with made her story in Baines Creek come to life. There's something magical, which I found out in researching the Appalachian ginseng, was that it's really kind of special and is greatly revered by China, for example, who sees it as both longevity and and mental health. Um, So I've gathered lots more than I needed for my book, but it was a respectful product of the mountains for certain. Ginseng harvesting continues today. But it's nothing like the days of the late 1800s, when the roots were ripped up with near-reckless abandon, endangering the plant to the edges of extinction. But before we dive into the history, let's dive underground. My name's Keith, K-E-I-T-H, Tigner, T-I-G-N-O-R. 
Keith Tigner is Virginia State Apiarist and also the Endangered Species Coordinator for the Virginia Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. He begins our chat by explaining what ginseng is and why people seek out its tuberous roots in the first place. Pretty much for everything. Uh, if you feel like you're a little run down, it can give you an energy boost. If you feel like you're a little overstimulated, it can bring you down. If you feel like you would like to improve your performance in the bedroom, you, you take it. It's got a lot of different reasons that, that uh, people take it. Tickner says the plant has been collected for sale since the era of Daniel Boone, frontiersman and folk hero of early American history. It's a short, leafy, pretty nondescript-looking plant. It does, however, produce red berries. That's an important point we'll revisit in just a little bit. Uh, it's a, it's a shade-desiring plant, uh, so typically we see it in shaded areas, high lime content. So where we see hardwoods uh, in particular, that's typically where we see it. In Virginia, historically, it's found throughout the state. So it's the records of it from the eastern shore, from northern Virginia, from far southwest. Most of the ginseng today is being harvested in a more mountainous region. So those, those shady sides of the mountains is where you typically find them, in, like I said, in, in a hardwood forested area. Today, Tigner has an important part to play in making sure ginseng is harvested correctly and legally. In the 17 and 1800s, Americans discovered the Asian market, particularly the Chinese, had a hearty appetite for the plant, seeking its dried roots for supplements and teas. There's a, there's a Chinese version of the ginseng, and that ginseng was, was taken almost to extinction. Now it's starting to make a little bit of a comeback, but it's still in, the, in a very precarious situation. That demand grew, and Americans on the nation's frontier worked to satisfy it. The one thing that I would like for people to kind of understand is how uh, important ginseng was to mountain communities. This is Luke Monjay. Once a Georgia Tech football player, he's now a professor of history at Western Carolina University, specializing in Southern environmental history with a particular focus on Appalachia. He also recently wrote and published Ginseng Diggers, a history of root and herb gathering in Appalachia. I do. I do look for it wherever I can. And, uh, and, you know, I've had some pretty good luck finding it. But his first encounter with the root came early on. So my grandmother told me stories about digging ginseng um, for a while since I was, you know, a kid. Her father and grandfather kind of were involved in Hun ginseng and, and kind of taught her how to how to look for it, how to find it, as well as some of her siblings. So the affiliation with the plant and his family goes back generations. Manje says it's hard to quantify the importance of ginseng in Appalachia, but he's done his best to describe it. The thing about um, ginseng digging in the 19th century is it seems to have really picked up in times of economic instability, right, which is primarily after the Civil War. So after the Civil War, um, a lot of economic depression going on, crop prices are falling for all kinds of crops at that point. People's livestock had been destroyed. I mean, they just, they just didn't have a lot of options. So in, in times like that, ginseng could mean eating. <laughs> I mean, there's a few uh, people that I've kind of found in, in some of these ledger books that use ginseng to, <clears throat> to pay for, you know, cornmeal, bacon, so I think 
for not everybody relied on ginseng to eat, but but there were a few, right? Because ginseng was something of a of a social safety net for people. The Sengers weren't the first to discover ginseng, of course. Indigenous communities in North America are believed to have been using the plant long before this. Manjay says the Cherokee used it regularly, largely in ceremony. Iroquoian people and other inhabitants of the Great Lakes region had uses for it too. While some early Euro-American settlers in the Ohio Valley and Appalachia do seem to have used it on occasion, he said they were mostly focused on this export market. I mean, there's not a lot of numbers, but some of the numbers I was able to find indicated that, you know, maybe as much as 10 percent of kind of the local economy in, say, Murphy, North Carolina, was dependent on ginseng in 1870. Manjay tells me about a diary he found while doing research from a man named John May. He was a merchant working for an Ohio-based land speculation company. And he had kind of traveled over land through kind of west, western Virginia to try to sell a wagon load of goods that he had to these newly arriving kind of Euro-American settlers on the, on the river in places like Wheeling and Marietta. And his diary is, is absolutely fascinating because he, he basically starts off saying, like, I'm not going to take ginseng. It's too fickle. I'm going to try to sell my stuff for cash. But his diary is like day after day is like, nobody has cash. I'm going to have to start taking skins and furs. And then finally, he was like, uh, if I'm going to succeed, I'm going to have to start taking ginseng. And he talks about the ginseng economy in the, in the valley and how it was, um, it was a currency. Manjay says ginseng, for some families, was everything. School books, taxes, dinner. But things started to change as the government developed regulations around harvest in this post-Civil War era. It was the biggest boom in American history, right? Right between 1860s and like the 1880s. And that's kind of when it starts first getting regulated. North Carolina starts with a, a, a ginseng season. Georgia passes the ginseng season, you know, which is, limits it to September and October. And But then... Other laws start being passed. West Virginia passes a law in 1872, for example, that makes it illegal to dig ginseng on someone else's property uh, without without permission, without written permission from the landlord, which that's pretty that's all that that's the law now. But that's the first time that was enacted. Manjay says it was aimed at regulating these spaces in the mountains that were treated like common lands. They dug it from the commons. They dug it from the mountainsides that was owned by somebody, maybe a neighbor, maybe an absentee landlord. But it was, you know, everyone around just treated it as a common. And Manjay says it's hard to tell just how rigorously these regulatory laws were being enforced. But he believes it did have an effect on the harvest, particularly as the plant was being overharvested. That was a combination of fervor for the plant and for the fact that it takes ginseng three to four years to reproduce. What I think was happening was that people were now having to go days travel away to get to the good ginseng spots. And so they would, they would leave and they would go live there for two or three weeks out of the year, dig as much ginseng as they can and come back. And, you know, this creates tensions, right? Because people who are in those communities where the ginseng patches are still big, they didn't particularly like people they didn't know coming over and digging their ginseng. So tensions were definitely elevating. And here, he says, is where the story of ginseng gets a little spicy. Half 
having a good ginseng patch was something you definitely kept to yourself. And so there is an argument to be made for this fervor in which it was hunted and the tensions that grew with scarcity and regulation. But then something else happened. In the late 19th century, I think ginseng helped shape a lot of perceptions about the people of the mountains. This is kind of the time when outside writers were coming into the region and writing about these peculiar people in Appalachia who are living 100 years behind the times. So that was when Appalachia, as a, a people in a discrete cultural region, came to exist in the American imagination. And I think, you know, ginseng played a role in that because one of the things a lot of these writers focused on were these kind of branch water mountaineers who lived in the woods and were, were fairly mobile and nomadic. And more often than not, they mentioned that these people had no livelihood except to dig ginseng. And so I think ginseng and ginseng diggers helped to kind of shape the perception in the American mind that Appalachia was a, was a backward region, you know, that uh, comprised of people who lived in the woods and, and roamed around and, and didn't abide by marriage or laws or private property or anything like that. And some of these early perceptions of Appalachia still exist. Appalachian Outlaws, for example, was a show that premiered on the History Channel in 2014, featuring bearded, camo-clad diggers who collected their roots in sometimes unscrupulous ways. Whatever the perception, real or imagined, there was no denying the ginseng availability was dwindling and continued to do so throughout the 20th century. And in the 1960s, Keith Tigner says there was an effort to protect endangered species, and the international community developed a treaty with this goal in mind. I'm going to remember the name here. So, yeah, this is a little <clears throat> little bit involved, but it's the Convention on International Trade, Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora. Understandably, we just refer to it as CITES. American ginseng was added to one of the CITES appendices around 1975. As a result, under international trade, uh, the United States has to monitor the harvest and the export of American ginseng um, so that we make sure that it doesn't get to that point where it can go to extinction. According to Virginia Code, ginseng is listed as a threatened plant species in the wild, as determined by the Virginia Board of Agriculture and Consumer Services. Threatened means the plant is likely to become endangered within the foreseeable future throughout all or a significant portion of its native habitat. So for each state, regulation looks a little different. In Virginia, the season runs from September to December, and this is the only window of time in which you can harvest wild ginseng unless you're collecting it from your own land. Where you pick is important. Collection is prohibited on most state and local public lands. If it is an option, you'll need a permit. And you need permission to hunt on someone else's private property. What you pick has to be carefully considered, too. Wild ginseng has to mature to a certain point before you're allowed to dig. And then when you do harvest the ginseng, you have to plant the seeds of your harvested plant, those little red berries, into the ground where you harvested it. Primarily, the harvest of ginseng is of the root. So when you're taking out the roots, you're taking out the reproductive potential for that plant. So, you know, all the states are, are regulating that, that so that they have a chance for those each individual plant to reach maturity, to put out seeds, to have that propagation or have that reproduction continue for that 
um, that's being harvested. If you're shipping or transporting more than eight ounces of ginseng a year from Virginia, you have to be certified by the agency Tigner works for, the State Department of Agriculture. People buying or accepting ginseng to sell also have to have a license. If you're caught violating Virginia's wild ginseng harvest regulations, you could face up to 12 months in jail, up to a $2,500 fine, or both. And if ginseng is removed from federal lands, a person could face charges in federal court where fines and restitution amounts could be even greater. I was curious to know how many people are actually prosecuted for this kind of crime. I contacted the U.S. Department of Justice, and they sent me a 20-page document listing all the ginseng convictions in federal courts across the country since 2004. There were 57 in total, most of them coming out of the Eastern District of Kentucky, which is where Tigner says most of the country's ginseng harvest comes from. But there were at least six cases from Virginia's Western District listed. All but one of those six defendants were targets of a multi-year sting called Operation Viper, the Virginia interagency effort to protect environmental resources. Each of the defendants bought ginseng without a license at a fake storefront in the Shenandoah Valley called Dixie Emporium, operated by an undercover agent with the Department of Game and Inland Fisheries. In 2007, a married couple was convicted for buying ginseng at the Sham store and taking it back to Maryland, allegedly to sell at the wife's assisted living center and her sister's acupuncture practice. Most of those prosecuted were placed on probation and had to pay fines of between $500 and $5,000. Some had additional payments in the thousands to the Shenandoah National Park Law Enforcement Fund, and a few also had to publish an apology in English and Korean in the Korean Times newspaper, where many of them saw advertisements for the sham store. Do we have a sense of how these changes that went effect into the 70s have, have, um, have done for the health and wellness of that plant population? Well, I think overall, yes, it's been beneficial. If you look at the harvesting that was occurring back in the 1970s, you know, we were harvesting tens of thousands of pounds. Um, now we're down to annually, we're looking at between 1,500 and 2,000 pounds that's harvested in Virginia. Part of it is, is demographics that the, um, uh, we don't see as many people out in the woods. Part of it is just the availability of the plants. Um, we're seeing a lot of, of uh, loss of habitat. So I think through the regulations that we have, we have some protection that's given to ginseng to make sure that it's available for future generations. So harvesting ginseng physically and logistically requires effort. And Tigner says you need about 250 to 300 roots to make one pound of wild ginseng. In 2022, the amount of ginseng harvested in Virginia was valued at just over a million dollars. But the price of the plant can fluctuate. When Tigner first started his job, a pound of ginseng would fetch about 250 bucks. But at times, a digger could get $1,000 for the same amount. Today, you'll get about five to $600 per pound. And that's specifically for wild ginseng, which consumers swear is far better than any cultivated product. Does that diminish the value of the crop if you were to grow it? This is, it's really fascinating. So cultivated ginseng typically fetches about 1 20th of the price of wild ginseng. 
around there, right? I mean, it's it's is not nearly as valuable as wild ginseng, and this all has to do with the Chinese tastes, um, Chinese preferences, um, and and there's a big kind of debate over what domesticating it does, what cultivating it does to the plant. But the fact is that they can sell it for a lot less money. What's Sang going for this year, Tattler? Romy's doing $70 a pound. That'll do. The root of ginseng was what we gonna dig that day, hang it to dry, keep some for what ails us, and sell the rest to Romy for big money. Romy sends Sang from our mountain. For not only describing this place, but also the characters, how do you see the ginseng playing that role? Well, I think that it was a close product to the moonshining, which meant that it was, um, you know, a homespun way of earning money and um, and exploring it. I happened to choose my character to go to a, a piece of mountain that she knew it was there and that she had permission to hunt it. But it goes back to one of my goals in uh, If the Creek Don't Rise, which was to um, to honor the customs and the talents and skills of Appalachia. I think back to the honesty of working with the dirt, with the mountains, with what it provided um, that I loved setting my characters in. Um, it's sort of my roots. I come from very humble roots uh, in Eastern North Carolina, but I have great respect for these hardworking people of the mountains. As for the future of ginseng, Manje isn't sure. Yes, the domestic market is growing, but for him, conservation of this unique little plant and its big history is paramount. Uh, you know, as we're looking into kind of the post-coal future, it would be nice if people could make money harvesting these things. And I hope that they can, but the big question is, can we do it sustainably? Um, and I hope we can hope we can figure it out. I got a lot of people kind of working hard on trying to make it so. If you're interested in learning more about Virginia's ginseng regulations, you can head to our website, wdbj7.com. And if you'd like to get your hands on both Weiss and Manjay's books, you can inquire with your local independent bookseller. Hometown Stories is a production of WDBJ7 in Roanoke, Virginia. This episode was produced by me, Leanna Scacchetti, and edited by Ben Roquelme. We'll see you next time.